podiobooks.com in association with pjballantine.net and writersexchange.com presents Weaver's Web, written and read by Philippa Ballantyne. As she may rode down to Skellig with a silent child before her in the saddle, the depths of his brown eyes were filled with fear, his fingers locked about her jerkin. She clutched him to her, remembering her own unsaid desires to have Geron's child. Dust now, of course. His warm little body was sheltered against hers, because he had no other. His mother and father had been taken by the weavers. He couldn't tell her his name. Looking down onto the castle, Ashime felt a chill run over her. Other clans had swelled the lustre since reaching the foothills of the mountains. She could hear the whisper of those hundreds at her back as they trickled over the final ridge, meagre possessions and sad bundles on their backs or loaded onto ponies. The news they carried with them had not been good. Already tendrils of weaver presence were creeping through Crisfell. Skellig was their only defence. It would be the last bastion against the onrushing tide. Absent-mindedly, Ashime kissed the top of the child's head, breathing in the soft smell of his hair and feeling the tug within her respond. The idea had been rolling around inside her for the last days, but she had said nothing to anyone. She had kept the thorny problem to herself, and the even thornier solution. One thing she was determined of, though, the clans would survive, and she would give her life's blood to see that they did. Skellig, hunched at the edge of the sea, grey and morose like some crabbed old man. Yet it was on this old man that they were relying. A typical mist obscured its feet, and she could make out the smudges of sails in the harbour. The Marakai ships were there, as promised. Ancient hulks meant for invasion were now their chance to salvage something. Aboard would be Crisfell's mothers and godlings. This was it, then. Her whole domain whittled down to those thousand or so she could gather here. High chief of all this, she smiled to herself. She heard Jeris's horse sidle nervously up to her, but she did not turn her head. It had not spoken to her in the last few days, its own problems occupying it. As she may have not tried to intrude, she wanted its choices to be its own, not influenced by her. It was the only way she could live with herself. I can see warriors on the ramparts, Jerris offered, its superior senses revealing more than her own. Not enough, she said, pulling the trembling child closer. He made not a sound. Not nearly enough. Her friends drew around her, and as she may knew they were waiting for her to make some profound announcement, some stirring speech that would make it all seem better. She had said all there was, though. Now there was only battle. No banter, no cheery songs for the road, only grim determination. As she may urged her horse down the last slope to the grey embrace of Skellig. The chiefs had not been idle in her absence. They rode through Skellig town and found it deserted. Every shop was stripped, every townsperson was inside the castle walls. After the bustle and noise, it was more than eerie. It rattled the nerves. The nail in the coffin was the hungry beaver. The wolves muttered to themselves to see the sign removed, the shutters barred, and dust gathering in the horse trough. Ashimay kept her sight of herself. By the end of all this, they would be lucky if the hungry beaver was the only casualty. Still, it hurt to think of all those moments shared there, gone. Closer to the castle, they came across clanspeople hard at work. 
The market area, which was nearest to the walls, was being taken apart to make a better killing ground. Bright banners and tents in different clan colours lay crumpled in the dirt. Young children were busy ripping them up for bandages that would soon be in short supply. The nearest buildings were being soaked in thick layers of pitch brought down from Skellig by the huge bucketful by other grim-faced workers. One fire arrow in the whole area would be an inferno. Ashima was pleased. The last problem she wanted was to have to deal with reluctant chiefs. Apparently the tales from the villagers had done what no amount of her coaxing would. Riding up the causeway, she tried to judge the odds. Skellig was a mighty castle, built on an almost unassailable peninsula. There were only two ways in, the gate and the pier. Normally she would have been optimistic of their chances, if it was any mortal foe. The hooves of their ponies echoed on the stone cobbles of the bailey, but were barely heard above the chaos they found within. Huddled knots of bewildered clanspeople clustered together, clutching their only possessions and kin in equal amounts. Annoyed-looking townspeople were arguing loudly with those castle stewards trying to assemble some sort of order. Everywhere was chaos, the wail of a lost child echoing round the wall and one minor scuffle between guards and our eight clansmen over the necessary destruction of a clan wagon. And, of course, the ranks sent of frightened people and animals. Skellig had never seemed less like home than this moment. A large deputation of chiefs waded in her direction. Handing over her charge to Connor, Ashimay slipped down off her pony to greet them. She gestured brusquely to her friends, indicating that she wanted them on hand. They were to be her lifeline. She recognised most of the approaching faces, having been at Guerin's side for so many years, helped here. But there was a young woman standing at the rear of the group she didn't recognise. She had a sweet, heart-shaped face and wide, doe eyes, yet her hair was tied in a chieftain's knot. Ashime frowned. The woman wore the Marakai laif. Opare, chief of the Sudrans, opened his mouth, but she waved him aside. What has happened to Lorcan? she asked, feeling a pit open in her stomach. The chief of the Marakai was less than her favourite person, but contingency plans hinged on his tribe. The other chiefs parted to allow the woman through. Her steps were hesitant, and she seemed unable to meet Ashime's eyes. I, I'm List, chief of the Marakai. She paused to catch her breath. Lorcam was slain when the weavers attacked our village. I am his sister. The woman had no resemblance at all to the fiery lord, seeming positively meek. And the ships, are they all here? Ashime demanded. All are in the harbour, Least said, awaiting your orders. Each has a pair of mother and godlings aboard, as you asked. They say there is no trouble communicating between them. This ability would prove very important. Good, Ashime said. I'm sure you will represent your clan admirably. Sweet mother, she had to give the girl something to go on with. But for now she pushed the problems of the Marakai away. There was plenty more to occupy her time with. There was far too much, as it turned out. The chiefs had sent out runners to the four major roads leading to Skellig. Only three had returned, bearing no news. So it was relatively easy to guess from which direction the threat came. The south. Jerris found her. Across the heads of concerned clansmen, she caught its eye. The amber look it fixed her with was strangely muted and thoughtful. After a moment of salvaging prides and stroking egos, Ashime managed to reach it. Catching hold of her arm, Jerris guided her to what passed for a quiet corner of the bailey. You need a scout to keep an eye on the weavers, it said. What are you saying? 
I am the one to do it. No, she tried to reason with it. I need you here. It's too... Dangerous? A small smile at its lips. Really, Ash, there is no one better to do it than I. My extra senses will stand me in good stead. Besides, here I can only be your bodyguard. Let me go somewhere I can be of use. By our link, I can let you know how close they are. Ashime did not argue further, sensing it needed to be useful to her. Sensing it needed to be away from the closeness of Skellig. That first day, Jerris trotted from the castle, spurning the need of a horse, secure in its aloneness. She watched its golden form disappear into the darkness of the evening, long legs already eating up the miles. Then she turned back to the matter at hand. She had so much to do, and so many people clamoured for her attention. She felt engulfed in the churning mass of faces and questions. Clanspeople were chaotic, and their individuality demanded that they follow no order until it had been questioned at least twice. The yammer of their demands battered her until she wished the weavers were here already. Ashime said nothing of the inner battle that still went on inside her. The voices in the wind continued, and rage always lingered close to the surface. She was going mad, she knew, and with each hour that drew the weavers nearer, she lost a little more of herself. Three days, Jerris whispered into her dreams. Three days. She awoke with a shudder, having caught a sliver of the sight it had seen. The weavers would reach them so soon and in such numbers as to make her weep. A curious hush descended over the tribes then, as the reality was hammered home. But still little ragtag bunches slipped in through the tower gate, carrying more disturbing stories and gloom, all seeking shelter from the coming storm. What little there was to be had. The morning of the second to last day, Ashime gathered her chiefs and companions about her for one last council of war before chaos overran them. Her thoughts gnawed on her from within, and she had to share or go finally and completely mad. None of them could believe it when she finally voiced them. They stared at her, their faces locked in shock and surprise. You must be joking. Damon started from the table as if burned. Abandon Crisfell and Skellig too? The other chief's faces were getting red and she could sense an explosion brewing there. Her friends seated to the right of her were calmer, having truly seen what was bearing down on them. Solistra and Lou stood by the window as immovable as the mountains framed behind them. I mean it, as she may said quietly. We will fight while we can, but live as we must. Mortray, chief of the Marith, slammed to his feet, his face contorted, his sword rattling against the table. We will not! We will fight to the last! To the last blood, the last bone! Never! Connor snapped from his position at her shoulder, his voice grim. Let the high chief say her peace! He took his job as self-appointed guardian seriously. The man eyed him up, but sank fitfully back to his chair. You will see... As she may rose, and moved towards them, her voice firm and her face grim. When they are at the walls, you will all see what they can do, what they are. Like nothing you've ever known, Lou murmured. When they come, you will understand that there is no honour to be gained staying here. If we could fight, stain the ground with our blood, then I would stay. But they have no honour. 
We will die. Or worse, not. And still become part of them. The chiefs leaned away from her. The message she spoke harsh in their ears. Damon averted his eyes, no doubt thinking of all that he'd lost. So you see, she said, nothing is left. We will fight and show them we are no cowards. But when the time comes, we will away on the ships. But to where? Guston asked. She blessed him for his fortitude. To Sitkin, of course. She heard Connor stir behind her. Our closest neighbour. We will join with them, battle against the weavers, and one day live to return to Crisfell. We, we cannot. The chiefs still couldn't absorb what she had said. Ashima lowered herself wearily into her chair once more. We can and we must. I know this is a hard thing to bear, but you will understand once they are here. You will see. She dismissed them, and they rose, shaky and pale, but left without further comment. Many would be the urgent conversations in Skellig's hall. She was sure. Ashima turned to her friends and let her head drop into her hands. Ask me what you will, then. What? Merrick rose and stretched his back. We have nothing else to say, Ash. We have prepared Skellig as best we can. Crinus was beginning to unwrap the bandages around his head. She sighed. Tell me. Quickly and without flowery language, they told her what they'd done. The pier was protected by a powerful quatrain of mothers and godlings. If things went sour, they would need a way to the ships. The Scarlet Wolves were ready. Each unit led by Rosa, Crinus, Guston, and Merrick, chafing for action. Supplies were ample enough, especially if they weren't planning for a long siege, and certainly they were straining to have so many cooped up behind the walls. The old castle well was brimming, and the pools of the inner ward stood in reserve. Surely her supportive friends were the greatest gift she had at her disposal. Ashima told them of her plan to get the clans out of Skellig, should things go as badly as she feared. This was only sensible. In the coming phrase, she had no illusions that she wouldn't necessarily survive. Across the table, she caught Rosso's eye, and he smiled a little. He'd avoided her more strenuously since the gates had swung shut. The last thing she wanted was that he would think she still held Giselle against him. A soul could not be laden with such regrets. She wanted hers to fly straight to her maker. He struggled for a moment to hold her gaze, but couldn't. If the divine was kind, there would be a moment for her to tell him. Then there is nothing else. She stood. You are my strength and my heart, my friends. Farewell. Raising a hand in the scarlet wolf salute, she watched them leave. Lou and Celestra pulled their robes about them, giving her a small nod of approval, and followed. Standing there, thinking her own tormented thoughts, she almost forgot Connor. His hand was on her shoulder, jerking her from the reverie. The muscles underneath his grasp were drawn and tense. Ash, there's something I have to tell you. Something I should have told you before. But when you said, their little moment was lost when the door burst open and the small form of a page hurtled in. His eyes were wide and there was the reek of fear about him. Lady, he gasped, grasping her armor in terror. They're coming. Sweet mother, she turned to Connor. Ahead of time. What can it mean? 
Not giving him any chance to reply, she made for the outer curtain wall. It seemed that all that could fit on the battlements were there, warriors, chiefs and townspeople, all obedient to the urge to see their enemy. Ashima and Connor shouldered their way to the tower gate. She tried not to look until she had the best vantage. The hill opposite the great curved horn of headland that was Skellig writhed and heaved with life and danger. Surely on Crisfell and the Arta Islands there could not have been that many living creatures. She'd seen many armies on the move, many units, but none like this. A sight to chill the soul, and all so quiet. So still, you could only hear the sound of feet on soil and road. Every other gathering of clansmen was a raucous affair. People were jostled and pushed, stumbled, and the sound of many voices cheered them. Pipes played and battle hymns were sung. The weavers, though, came with slick precision towards them. So many they were that it was like a great heaving carpet of form and movement. They flowed down the hill towards the abandoned Skellig town. It was too far yet to see their forms. Look at him go! A shout came from further along the wall. A finger shot out and Ashime followed it. Only then could she see whom they meant. Jerris raced before the weavers, like a seabird before the oncoming tide. Golden hair bouncing behind, it moved as gracefully as it did everything. And yet behind there were pursuers, things of long leg and tooth, whose crazy shapes bobbed so far above the ground that they looked almost like stilt walkers. They ate up the distance swifter than Jerris. Her heart came into her throat. Come on, Connor rumbled at her side, his fists clenched. Run, Jerris. In the mother's name, run. All along the wall, people risked falling to call out over the battlements. Ashime said nothing, fingernails digging into her palm. Her urgings were silent. One of the pursuers was faster than the rest, leaping over a collapsed tent and sweeping a sickle arm out to grasp at Jerris. Ashime gasped along with the others. Swift as thought, Jerris dropped to the ground, rolled and came up facing it. Faster still was the sword in his hand. The creature's bone-fine leg shattered with a sound like glass breaking, and Jerris raced on. Quick, the sally port, as she may called, having almost forgotten herself. Sweet mother, get the damn door! Wolves hurried to obey. Reaching the wall, Jerris turned to face the things that were rushing towards him like stick puppets. The wolves set their shoulders to the door, and many hands reached for him. Not a heartbeat too soon. Jerris was jerked quickly inside, a fine sweat on his brow, the only signal of fatigue. Once in the safety of the bailey, it was surrounded by slaps on the back and congratulations. Ashime smiled to herself and hurried down the steps to get to it. Its face was striped with profound befuddlement. Shoving her way through, she embraced it roughly. Together, they were almost lifted from their feet by the crowd about them. She found her face against the leather armour Jerris had deigned to wear. You run like the wind! Connor had to shout to be heard above the rest. Well, you know, Jerris replied in its dry style. It helps to have some incentive. Later, after a little food and a long draught of water, Jerris stood with her on the battlements. The elation of its escape had faded. Together they looked out over the unsettling view. The main body of weavers had stopped just short of the town, either cautious or uncertain. It couldn't last. Below the wall, the stilt-legged creatures stalked. Occasionally a face, still bearing the hint of humanity, would stare blankly up at them, its claws skittering like insects across the stone. They are the least of our problems, Jerris said, dismissing their talons and teeth as lightly as possible. Far worse things than the main bunch, many primes, 
and others I don't know. You said three days, Eshime said evenly. Some landed to the south, but they also landed to the east. I was almost cut off. So these aren't all? No. They are very silent. She strained mental and physical ears, but there was nothing. Yes. Very worrying, really. Ashime glared out at them, her rage boiling away ceaselessly. It was a good thing that so many years of controlling it had prepared her for this. Damn you, she thought of them. Why are you here? What deal did you make with Garen for this? As if they'd been waiting for her to think that very thing, the weavers moved. Shuffling, running, galloping, they surged forward through Skelligtown. The power of their coming was so great that she could see houses uprooted like saplings before them. Mentally, she counted to the spot where the hungry beaver stood. She picked up her bow and nodded to the wolf who stood ready at her shoulder. Arrow. He handed it to her and waited until it was strung. Only then did he light the oil-soaked tip. Smoothly, she pulled the string to her ear, feeling the tautness of it and the heat of the arrow. Now, let's see how well you know how to dance, you ugly bastards, she whispered. Between one breath and the next, she released. The first of the creatures was just upon the site of the market. The arrow lanced up against the sky and sped on its course with a divine retribution. Where it struck, flames followed. The whole of the pitch-covered area went up with a mighty rush of air. Those on the battlements flinched back from the sudden explosion. It singed hair and hurt the eyes. All, however, wanted to see the destruction. In the heart of the flame, weaver forms twisted and turned, still gracefully. It was like a dance. Looking away, Ashime caught the eye of her grandfather. He stood among their clan, leaning on the great sword of the chief. He seemed made of stone, expression calm. She held that image to her as she went back into the bailey. Call me when it stops, she said to Gustin as he stared at her oddly. I have better things to do than watch them burn. No. Gustin said philosophically, looking out over the remains of the town. Doesn't look good. Crinus, whose injured eye was still red and angry, leaned on his knee against the battlement and risked peering over the side. <sighs> They've not come up against the castle yet. That flame gave them something to think about. What do you think they'll do? Connor eyed the older warriors. This was his first siege, having read of many but never experienced the real thing. The others were more happy to share, though. Oh, hard to tell, Rosso said. We're the normal enemy. We usually want you out of there as fast as possible. But then, with a castle as well built as Skellig, they'll probably have to starve us out. Or sap the walls, Eric added. But these weavers are a whole other story. There was silence for a few moments, as all five of them considered the possibility. The enemy was a virtual unknown, their objective murky, and their tactics unimaginable. Connor looked down the length of the wall. Bundles of arrows leaned ready and waiting against it. Clan's people had laboured long and hard to drag weighty boulders up. Those would make nice dents into whatever weavers were below them. And nestled in the towers were heavy iron cauldrons. Young boys fought to become the ones to keep the fires beneath them lit day and night. The thick sludgy oil in the vessels was maintained at a temperature that made them bubble and boil. Connor shuddered to think of what it might feel like to have that poured over you. 
The amusings were cut short when shouts rang out from within the bailey. All grabbed up their weapons, their hearts pumping. Connor thought of what Merrick had said. Sappers, perhaps? Guston peered over the wall onto the seething mass of clanspeople. We'd better get down there, he urged the others. Looks like they're about ready to tear each other apart. Connor was bewildered for a moment. The shapes within the bailey all seemed to be human, and there was so much shouting that for a moment he couldn't catch any one set of words. Four captains waded into the crush, pulling others back, knocking heads and demanding. Wolves aid them. In this way, they soon made it to the tight little knot where the whole trouble seemed to have originated. Connor trailed in their wake. These clans of Crisfell, which he'd always thought of as one unit, quite obviously weren't. When he reached the others, Rosa was wrestling with a huge six-foot giant, while the rest were literally sitting on three different combatants. Ashime had taught Connor enough so that he picked out the leif of Dunleary and Marakai. The huge tower of muscle was one of Ashime's kin. Rosa was having a real difficulty with him. Scarlet wolves came to the aid of their captain, shoving and pushing and generally using their superior arms to get some form of order. They managed to hold back the surging ranks of people. Guston stepped between the struggling groups and raised his hand. Is this how you want your high chief to see you? He glared around. Is this how you want the weavers to see you? The crowd mumbled many aside, but the idea of such dishonour in her eyes was enough to dissuade them, at least those that had only been on the fringes of the fight. When these had backed off, Guston sighed and turned to the real culprits. Do you mind telling me what in the sweet mother's name you're doing? Rosa released the giant with a sigh and brushed him off. Trail, I hadn't picked you for a troublemaker. The clansman gave the captain an almost embarrassed sideways look, and he huffed through his beard. It was them, Rosa. They insulted Dunleary to my face. Clannis shook his head. Never a smart thing to do. Guston glowed at the three more diminutive clansmen. Have you got a death wish? The Marakai seemed anything but sorry. Everyone knows that the island clans are strange. One braver than the rest piped up. They have strange rituals and... Now just stop there. Guston had already one restraining hand, resting on Trio's chest, as the giant seemed about to surge forward once more. I hope you know what you're saying. Which tribe do you think your high chief comes from? The Marakai twitched and looked away. Connor had always guessed that this tribe had the least love for Eshimei. I mean... Guston's voice came rumbling ominously from his chest in a totally alien way to his usual manner. If you imply any slight to the High Chief, then... No, no, certainly not. The Marakai were already sidling away, the lead troublemaker turning an almost puce colour of fear. He glanced nervously round at the dark, angry faces of the wolves and slipped away into the crowd with a final, Of course not. Trios subsided once the threat to the clan's honour was removed. He pulled his leaf around him with as much dignity as he could but he nodded respectfully enough in the companion's direction and returned to his kinsman. The captains retreated back to the wall. Few of the crowd seemed to be able to meet their eyes. Connor felt tension building inside him. I'm glad Ashime didn't see that, he commented to Crinus. This is the last thing she needs, all right. Rosa's expression was for once grim. It's always been on the cards with the clans, with the Duke gone. There isn't a lot to hold them together. Except Ash, Merrick remarked, as they returned to their place in the battlements. Well, Rosa said in his inimitable style, tomorrow we'll give those weavers a good working over and see if we can't send them packing. At least, for the honour of the beaver. His friends smiled to themselves. Crinus shook his head. I suppose everyone has to have something to fight for, Rosa. But you're the only person I know of who would die for a tavern.
I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of Weaver's Web. If you want to get your hands on an e or print edition of this novel, you can do so through my website, which is pjvallantine.net. On this podcast, you've heard Ghost Song by Hands Upon Black Earth, which is available through magnatune.com. All other music in this podcast supplied by T. Morris. Find out more about T at tmorris.com. Thanks for listening.